Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Heather Jones. Professor Jones is Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London. She is an expert on the Great War and has written extensively on the subject. And today we are discussing her new book, For King and Country, British Monarchy and the First World War, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor Jones. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Charles. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? The main argument of my book is that the the role of the British monarchy in the First World War has been really overlooked, Uh, not just in terms of its role behind the scenes, in terms of influencing political decision-making, but also its role as a cultural symbol and its importance in mobilizing an idea of Britishness um, in support of the war effort. Why do you not entirely agree with the modernization thesis as per the British monarchy in the beginning of the 20th century? So a lot of historians who've worked on the monarchy have made the argument that at the start of the 20th century, the monarchy modernized very successfully. It used mass media in new ways. Um, it, It became a kind of accessible democratic institution. And what I felt looking at the war was that actually the situation is a bit more mixed. Um, th- these ideas about modernization actually are happening in a context where very, very old and, if you like, um, somewhat archaic ideas about monarchy are also part of the picture and part of the mix. People see the monarchy as sacred. There's a, a lot of religious ideas around the monarchy as well. Um, and these these older ideas about a kind of sacred kingship role in British society and the idea of a kind of um, continual uh, royal lineage linking Britishness back through time are very much present as well. So the modernization that's taking place, the mass media images of the monarchy are actually about transferring messages that are actually quite archaic and quite old about monarchy. Why prior to your book uh, was the period of the Great War an unexplored topic as per the British monarchy? That's a very good question. I think one of the reasons is that actually historians of monarchy have tended to stop in 1914. They haven't really addressed the monarchy after that period in such detail. Um, partly that's to do with source uh, access and, and the fact that the, the monarchy itself remained obviously very politically relevant in Britain and a sensitive issue. Um, but partly it's also because specialists in monarchy did tend to focus on the 19th century and specialists on war uh, tended not to really be specialists on monarchy. So we had a kind of fragmentation of the historical profession as well. And, and to bring those two historical Historiographies of monarchy and of the First World War together, uh, which my book does really for the first time, uh, was was something very important. I felt I felt that the wartime monarchy, in a way, had had fallen between two stools, and as a result, it's sort of been forgotten and certainly had been overlooked. Do you agree with the Arno Mayer thesis of the continuity of the Ancien Regime up to 1914, as you appear to do so in your book? I think many aspects of the Ancien Regime survived through the First World War. So I would say a tentative uh, or qualified yes, I would, I, would, I would agree with that point in your question. 
And uh, what does one mean exactly by the phrase, uh, the term, the long First World War? So recent scholars such as Robert Gervarth and John Horne have argued that when we look at World War One and we look at it just as a conflict from 1914 to 1918, what we're effectively doing is simply taking a kind of Western Front dateline. And in fact, if we look at this as a war of empires, global empires and, and, and the, the fallout of the violence from the First World War, it has a much later end date, pushing it right through to 1923. The Great War for the Ottoman Empire and its successor state, the New Republic of Turkey, really doesn't end till 1923. And likewise for Greece, uh, if you look at the Greco-Turkish War that follows on directly from the First World War and really is in many ways a, a continuity conflict. And um, if we look at the start of the First World War, again, the picture starts to look a lot more mixed. If we start thinking about the war as something that comes from uh, the falling, the falling apart of empires and tensions around empires in, in, in Europe in this period. And so the start date of the war for Gervarth and Horn is 1911 uh, and the Ottoman Empire's um, uh, weakening and the Italian invasion of what was then Ottoman Libya. Uh, so those those kinds of wars before the war um, start to look much more like part of the First World War. Uh, if we start to look at what the, what it might have been like to be someone living in the Balkans uh, in this period, uh, you're, you're effectively at war from the First Balkan War of 1912 uh, right through to 1923. Uh, so the idea that there's just one set of dates for World War one and those happen to be the dates of the Western European powers, uh, it doesn't really fit uh, in, in terms of when we start looking at, at this as a global war and a global conflict. Why do you believe that the popular image of uh, King George V as a stamp collector and a, as a hunter, a mistaken one? I think the, the popular image comes from a, a 1950s uh, biography of the king that was done by the writer Harold Nicholson. And Harold Nicholson really emphasized uh, some of the king's personal habits. So his his stamp collecting, um, his obsession uh, with hunting. Um, but these were actually his pastimes. In a way, they were his stress relief, if you like. Uh, his actual role in, as, 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 as monarch is a very difficult one in this in this whole period, the whole period of his reign, but particularly in World War One. Um, and Nicholson's book really downplayed the war uh, and it really didn't give any attention to the emotional stress uh, that the leading figures had uh, during the war. Uh, so, for example, the king is, is visiting hospitals sometimes three times a day, seeing wounded men, disfigured men. Men, men who are dying from their wounds. The Queen also is visiting these, these, these hospitals. They spend a lot of time visiting the war wounded right from the start of the war, right through the whole four years of the conflict. This is incredibly stressful and draining and difficult. And there's also a huge responsibility on the monarch because this is a war for king and country. And one of the things my book really argues is we've forgotten that in 1914, during the period where Britain was mobilising around a voluntary army and didn't have conscription, one of the incentives that's used to get men to join up is this idea that they're fighting for their king. And the monarchy is very romanticized in that early war propaganda. It's very much seen as a reason for fighting, doing your duty to the king, serving your monarch. All this language is very much there in those first years of the war. And so the king felt a huge responsibility for the whole of his life uh, from, this, from, the, from the moment this war broke out onwards um, that these men had died for him. And so this is in, uh, when, when you start looking at the emotional life and stresses that, that George V endured during the war. And suddenly you start to see what the stamp collecting is about and you start to see it in perspective. So, for example, when he returns from seeing some of these horrific um, war wounded injuries, he, he goes and looks at his stamp collection. So it's a way of trying to switch off. Nicholson very unfairly sort of 
uh, seems to think that that's all the king uh, was, was effectively doing in many ways, that that was his entire, that, his, his, his entire inner life. But actually, um, I think us today, we would understand that as something um, where, where, where someone is responding to and trying to deal with um, the emotional stresses of their day job by having something that's very escapist and allows them to leave that behind. Another key thing about uh, what the, the monarch is doing is he's putting himself in danger during the war quite deliberately. Um, he's not able to go and lead his men on the battlefield, but he is able to, to visit them on the battlefield and quite deliberately frames his visits to the Western Front. Um, he makes six. Um, he tries to frame these as being with his men uh, when, when, they go, when, they, when they go to fight. Uh, and on, on one occasion at the start of the Battle of Amiens, uh, he's actually there at the start of the battle watching it uh, from higher ground. So there's very much a sense of, of him trying to be present, um, he 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 tries to to to, to you know go go into his, uh, the places that have just been recently bombarded. Um, in some cases, he's actually in villages that have just been shelled or are shelled after he leaves. Um, he's never in the exact front line because he's actually constitutionally prohibited from leading his troops into battle. Um, but he is very much putting himself in danger, and that's also very stressful. So this idea of kind of hunting and stamp collecting collecting as some kind of you know. Um, uh, King who's 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 not paying attention to the war, or who's just um you know um uh, spending it in kind of luxury away from the front. It couldn't it couldn't be more incorrect. This is someone who works um incredibly hard and puts himself in danger. Why do you claim that the UK monarchy was quote the key diplomatic channel unquote in the July crisis of 1914 when most of the recent literature would uh, query this? Well, actually, there's not very much recent literature on what the monarchy is doing in July 1914. Um, most of the literature really overlooks the role of, of Buckingham Palace and what's going on there uh, and focuses very much on, on the Foreign Office. And so this, these back channels and, and, and the role of the monarchy and the way that it's, it's, it's used to try and, um, to try and uh, you know, uh, try and actually stop the war um, by the British government isn't really um, very much examined. If you look at Thomas Otta's uh, recent book, um, there's not there's not really any mention in there about what, what the monarchy is doing in the July crisis. And um, so I think this is a whole area that really needs to be revisited, actually. Um, and there's probably room for more work. Um, my, my own book touches on it, but I think there's 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 certainly a lot more room to go and look at the the, the archives across Europe and see what what you know what, what what's actually how they actually respond to these uh, these messages coming through uh, coming through Buckingham Palace to them about about the, the build up to war. Um, but what's clear is that. The aura of the monarchy is being used uh, by the British government and the Foreign Office. And actually, there are two sites by which um, Britain is communicating with European powers during the July crisis. It's communicating through the Foreign Office and also through the King and through Buckingham Palace. And when it wants to really make a statement to the Tsar or the Kaiser, it's, it speaks through the King. Because this is an era where most European states are, are controlled and, and governed directly by monarchs. Uh, Britain's unusual in its constitutional monarchy format and that the monarchy is quite constrained in, in the political realm. But in, in terms of the Kaiser, the Tsar, they will speak to a fellow monarch much, much more openly and they will respect a fellow monarch more than politicians uh, from, 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 from other states, civilian politicians from other states. So the monarchy is very, very important in giving gravitas to those messages of the British government to these absolute monarchs across uh, across across Europe and constitutional monarchs across Europe, and this is you know this is this is something that I think has been actually very much overlooked in in the existing historiography. Again, the existing historiography until the cultural turn um, of the 1990s really focused very much on kind of traditional understandings of power. We would think more now in terms of soft power and the and the role and the importance. Of, of Britain using the monarchy in that way uh, in its international relations in 1914.
So you don't uh, believe that the fact that uh, people like Ate or Christopher Clark or Sean McMeekin don't make reference to the monarchy, British or otherwise, as being prime movers in the crisis, more the case that there's little evidence for it, so then hence the narrative omits it. No, I wouldn't. I think there's a there's a lot of questions about access to sources still in terms of the Royal Archives. I think in terms of the way in which um, politicians um, liaise with the king, if you think of that late night dash by Asquith to Buckingham Palace, where the king has got out of bed and asked to, to, to approve and, and, and actually chip in to drafting a telegram to the czar. I mean, there's much that actually there and um, we, we really need to revisit. I would I would argue that um, it isn't the case that the monarchy matters more than the civilian politicians, but it's that they're working hand in hand on this and they're all trying to avoid war. And to, to neglect one aspect of that dynamic, uh, which in 1914 is a very different dynamic to the role of the monarchy in the post-war period where it operates differently. It still has a lot of political direct input in a Europe of monarchies in 1914. Uh, to ignore that, uh, I think, is, is, is mistaken. I mean, those are wonderful historians you've named. But yes, I would, I would, I, I would say that it, the, the monarchy needs to be looked at more for that July crisis. Moment. Actually, your response leads directly to my next question, which is exactly or approximately how much hard and soft power did George V have during the great the period of the Great War? That's a very good question because it actually fluctuates. So in terms of um, his areas of power, one of his most important areas is, is um, consulting. So if you think about the role of the monarchy uh, to warn, to consult, uh, to advise, um, what, 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 what he does is he, 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 he basically uh, consults and, and advises uh, the government on, on, on military matters, uh, both in terms of military appointments, where he's very important, and in, in particularly in keeping Hague in his position towards the end of the war when many of the civilian politicians want Hague gone, um, the monarchy's backing for Hague is really fundamental in Hague retaining that role. Um, he's, but he's also very important in terms of some of the government formation in wartime as well. Um, he has a direct role in, in, uh, when, in when, when Asquith uh, falls from power. He's a direct role at that point politically. Um, he's a direct role in the plans for conscription. Politicians are going to Buckingham Palace. There are meetings behind closed doors about what form conscription will take. Will it happen? Can it happen? Remember, these are the king's armies that are being discussed. And so therefore the king is, as, as commander in chief of the army, uh, which, as, which is the power that's delegated then to the actual commander in chief in the field the king as commander-in-chief constitutionally of the british army has a huge role there um so that 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 is really i think in many ways where his most important power lies um there's also the question of privy council uh, legislation so during the war a lot of legislation uh, is passed by privy council because it is simply not possible to get it through parliament in wartime fast enough um, so there's a question there as well about what exactly uh, is the role of the monarchy in 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 in, in terms of legislative uh, processes in wartime too. But I think in terms of the hard power, it's in that area of the army, military patronage, advising and consulting on military strategy. Yes, the king doesn't always get his way, but what a key role he has in terms of influencing and in terms of advising and in terms of in some cases directly intervening and saying he doesn't want something to go ahead. Um, he's, 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 if you like, one of the government's key advisors in wartime. He doesn't have direct control but his input um, is, is very weighty and is often uh, taken into account uh, in cabinet meetings. Why do you not agree with the thesis that monarchical power declined during the Lloyd George premiership? I think that thesis is overplayed. 
I think Lloyd George would have liked it to have declined. I think that's one of his aims. Uh, in, he wants to reform the monarchy. He's not actually an anti-monarchist as such. He's, he's in a more complex position on the monarchy. Uh, but he is an outsider who has come into this system and who doesn't like aspects of it. And particularly, I think, feels very class conscious of, of his own more humble origins in this system. So he would like it to decline. I think the monarchy also fear that that is what he is about and they fear the extent to which he will push those reforms. They fear in some cases that some of the more right wing advisors around around the court actually fear Lloyd George may maybe on the road to dictatorship. Now, we know now with hindsight that that is incorrect, uh, but it's, 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 it's what people think at the time in history that often is as important in understanding their decision making as what actually unfolds. So the things they get wrong uh, influence how they how they make up their minds and they get they get Lloyd George wrong at the palace. Um, he is a Democrat. Um, he is actually uh, in favour of Britain, Britain's existing constitutional system with a monarchy. But he is he is he is gung ho on trying to pull back some of the power, particularly around the military that the king has. But he's not able to conclusively do this. And particularly in the symbolic reign, the king really retains a huge amount of power and popularity that Lloyd George simply doesn't have uh, at some of the more difficult points in the war. So if one thinks of the, the, the mass strikes in the north of England uh, by munitions workers in 1917 uh, and in parts of Scotland, uh, the Red Clyde, when they occur, the government uh, discuss the cabinet what to do and they actually decide to send the king and queen to those areas um, on their on, on, on what, would, what at the time is term, termed kind of royal tours, where they visit the munitions factories and where the king actually talks to militant workers. And they do this because they know that Lloyd George can't go there. Lloyd George is not popular, particularly in, 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 in radical Scotland. Um, and so it is actually the monarchy that is more popular, the king that is more popular, who carries still that sacred aura, that sacralized uh, image and that, and that kind of um, gravitas of, of, as a British uh, historical figure as part of that monarchical genealogy. Um, and he can go there and he is able to, with, with that kind of personal touch to calm those situations. So I think, you know, Lloyd George spins his own his own myth after the war and he, particularly his memoirs uh, where he plays things up that he wants to play up. Um, and, and he, you know, he really would have liked to maybe reform the monarchy even more. Um, he only gets some quite limited reforms around the question of honours. Um, and even then that comes back to bite him in the post-war era. But when he's when he actually gets then um, um, gets accused of giving a kind of cash for honours scandal um, because he'd, he'd kind of corrupted the honour system by trying to put, uh, trying to offer honours in exchange in exchange for favours. Uh, so, so I think I, I personally would challenge the argument that had existed in some of the older historiography that you know this period of Lloyd George's premiership was was uh, was a period of, of, of radical and um, 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 you know uh, removal of power from the monarchy. When you actually look at it in detail, that isn't what's happening. Uh, why do you, why do you believe that quote the monarchy helped shape the pattern of British voluntary mobilization unquote in the first two years of the Great War? I think it's very important that that, that we look at how the idea of a monarchist state is part of, of 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 the rhetoric and the romance that is built into this war volunteering campaign, this recruitment campaign in those in those years before conscription. So if we look at the rhetoric that's used, everything from music hall songs uh, right through to posters and images um, and the slogan uh, for king and country or your king and country want you. And um, monarchy is central to this. There has to be some kind of, uh, if you like, brand Britain, if you want to put it that way, uh, for 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 people to to to, uh, to kind of um, latch on to as they go off to fight and and. 
when you start to delve into what is Britishness in 1914, this, 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 you know, this, this archipelago of islands that make up the United Kingdom in this period and this global empire, what is it all about? Well, ultimately, fundamentally, it comes down to a dynastic loyalty to the King Emperor George V. And that is really used in war recruitment propaganda in the first two years of the war. And so those are the reasons why I would say that monarchism um, and, and channeled through the figure of the king, but also the wider royal family, the queen um, and, and particularly the two, their two older sons. Monarchism is really key to how Britain understands itself and what it thinks it's fighting for in those first two years of the war. How did the prevailing honor culture adapt and change, if at all, during the Great War? So honor culture is an argument I made that um, in, in 1914, to understand how British society operates, we need to understand the ways people understood reputation and respectability and all of those things. And in fact, it was a culture based on the ideas of honor, of doing your duty, and, and, and particular ideas that there are gendered forms of honor, men's honor, women's honor, that, um, that depend on someone's personal good name and their reputation. And doing your duty to your king was part of, of being an honorable man in this society at this, at this time. And this idea of an honor culture um, during the war, it, it, you know, it's something that we see right through the war, but it does really evolve. Um, and it's much it's much less visible in the 1917-1918 period where we are seeing war weariness. We are seeing uh, at the front, we are seeing some soldiers uh, very much, um, you know, becoming disenchanted with the idea of, of the monarchy or monarchism or a war for a war for, a war for monarchy. Very influenced also the elements of the Russian Revolution spilling over into in, in, into some of this as well. Um, but honor culture really revives and, 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 and finds a new role around honoring the war dead. Um, and so although there is are, there are these moments of tension in the war around around the idea of kind of a, 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 a monarchy and a kind of honoring the king. Once the war ends, honoring the war dead becomes a, a raison d'etre for the British monarchy. And they're able to channel war commemoration uh, in ways that then give them a, a role for the interwar world. Um, and that's something that, you, you, that, that becomes very valuable to them in a period where the rest of Europe is, is, is effectively um, in revolution and abandoning the idea of, of monarchical states. Why do you say that, quote, the monarchy was at the center of how the war was represented to populations across the empire, unquote? Well, because I think it, it, this, the monarchy was central to how, how the war was represented to populations around the empire. If we look at war posters, uh, war songs, war propaganda, war photographs, official photographs from the Western Front, war regalia, and there's monarchist symbols on, 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 on in many of the of the, the, the regimental uh, re regimental um, heraldry. There's monarchist symbols uh, in terms of in, in terms of the the, the the discussion of the king's armies. Monarchist language is very much present. So I think. It's very difficult once you start actually, you know, thinking about monarchism as a cultural form. It's very difficult to actually uh, avoid it in the way in the types of propaganda being produced. And now there are flashpoints around this. So if we look at South Africa, for example, where really South Africa is a very, uh, you know, a, 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 a very a recent part, a, a very recent incorporation to the British Empire at this point, uh, you know, because of the, the Second South African War, uh, better known maybe as the Boer War. And um, it's 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 an area where there are a lot of uh, of of, um, of people who are have just literally you know, become British subjects um, who previously had been fighting Britain. And for some of them, monarchism and the British monarchy is a really big problem um, and they are much more Republican in their view. Likewise, if we look at Ireland, uh, part of the United Kingdom in this period, um, a lot of anti-monarchism there, a lot of um, rebellious attitudes towards monarchy. Um, and so actually sometimes 
it, we actually find that, that you know that the, the extent of the monarchism being sent out to, uh, to to parts of the British Isles and the Empire, uh, we find it in those rebellious moments as well, where people actually are are are, are you know um, are alienated by that um, or antagonised by that. Um, but certainly, the monarchy is fundamental to how Britain is is representing itself across its empire. Why did the February Revolution in Russia trigger an upsurge in anti-monarchical discourse in the United Kingdom? So the February Revolution is a really interesting moment because a lot of observers hoped that would lead to a, a liberal democratic Russia. They didn't expect it to result in a Bolshevik uh, revolution, uh, which happens towards the end of the year. Um, so there's a lot of, of, of people who are actually a lot of liberals in, in Western Europe are actually quite positive about that, that February Revolution moment. And one of the things that we find in the British case, in the British home front, is that at the moment of the February Revolution, it unleashes a mass panic at court. It, it really alarms the advisors of, 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 of George V. They fear this is going to happen in Britain as well. They, they you know, they, they, become, they become actually over alarmed about this because the Tsar has been, uh, you know, he's, he's a cousin. He's a close relation of, of George V. George is very, very fond of him. They actually have a very close friendship as well as being cousins. And so that sense of, of, of alarm starts to spread. Um, and then there's also the February Revolution also allows for the first time discussion about monarchy as a system of governance. Um, and this has really been missing for most of the first years of the war. You look in vain for any discussion earlier in the war about the monarchy's German origins in Britain. You look for discussion about um, any kind of discussion about a republican system, any kind of discussion about whether the language of for king and country is is, is inappropriate at this point in, in, in the modern 20th century. And you don't find it. There is no debate around these issues, um, either in private sources or in public sources in Britain. But after the February Revolution, you start to see Radical fringe movements, uh, particularly groups associated around the very radical um, fringes of the London Socialist Press, um, starting to actually speak out about monarchies in Europe in general and saying that they're glad the Tsar has fallen. And then to raise the question as to whether monarchy itself is actually too well fashioned as a system of government. And they're very they're, they're not that many direct attacks on George V, actually, as a person, even when. When people are being critical in those radical, radical fringe um, uh, um, uh, press, press or organs, when when they're discussing monarchy, they've, they've, they're very careful to avoid attacking King George V and Queen Mary because they're they're still very popular as individuals. So what, what I what, what I found when I looked into this in quite a lot of detail is the February Revolution allows a space to talk about monarchy as a system and whether that is the best system for governance. Um, and it's usually framed in terms of discussing what's happening in Russia or what's, what should happen in Germany, where the Tsar is presented as a tyrant monarch um, and often framed in a way where that's discussed. And then the writer will conclude with, but of course, in Britain, our king is wonderful and we have a constitutional system. And don't we show how much better that is than those continental tyrannical monarchies? So actually, even some of the criticism ends up being you know, backhanded compliment to the actual British king and queen. Um, and the, the, the areas where there is actual real criticism and arguments for a British Republic are very, uh, you know, are very limited. There's a letter to the press by H.G. Wells, which provokes a massive pro-monarchist backlash. Um, and there's some discussion in some of the rad very radical um, socialist uh, newspapers. Um, in some cases, um, th those, those, are, those, are, those are newspapers that are quite closely associated with continental um, radical revolutionary uh, groups. And that, you know, there we see, there we see some, some strong anti-monarchism, but they are not, um, they are not press sources with large circulation. So the palace finds those, they're picked up by police intelligence, but it really, I think, overreacts because it thinks this is possibly going to spread mainstream. Now, one of the things that's really interesting in this is that 
what some of those radical groups pick up on is George's, uh, George V's German ancestry. And so this is the first time, April 1917 is the first time you start to see any discussion of the fact the royals have some German ancestry, which is, I mean, they have, they have, they have a huge amount. Queen Mary of, of, is Queen Mary uh, originally of tech, right? So, I mean, her, her, her parents were German. So, so there's, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, of, of kind of opening here to a discussion about the king being German. And that, that, that makes the monarchy panic and think that they have to cut this off. They have to act before any major press debate unfolds about the king's Germanness. And so they change the name to Windsor at that point in a preemptive move before there is a kind of massive um, anti-German surge against the monarchy. So in a way, by doing that, the anti-German surge peters out um, and we don't get we don't get a huge movement um, accusing the British monarch of being German in the way that you do in Russia, for example, against the Tsarina. And it's notable the difference in the two countries. You just don't get that in the British case. Um, so the shift to the name of, of Windsor is a preemptive move. It's a very shrewd move. It's very clever. Um, and the advisor, Lord Stamford, who's the king's kind of right hand man through the war, his private secretary, is absolutely instrumental to that move. And um, so, so that, that February Revolution moment is a turning point. Um, but we mustn't overplay it. There isn't. I, I argue in the book and, and you know, it's, it, it's, it, I think I think I think it's. it's a really important point to make, there isn't a real threat to the safety of the British monarchy in 1917 and 1918 in Britain itself. There simply isn't evidence of that uh, on any on any on any large scale. These are very, very minor voices that are making these arguments about uh, about, uh, you know, about the, the, the radical kind of um, German, the radical arguments about the king's Germanness in, in April 1917. So, in fact, uh, what I, you you don't actually use the term, but in, in fact, uh, the overreaction by the court, uh, in your from your perspective, did that result in so little anti-monarchical action in the UK? We leaving out, of course, Catholic Ireland. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think the I think their overreaction in February actually ultimately sort of saves them because they they jump in before things get out of hand. They jump in before. Uh, this moves from being a, a you know a, 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 a kind of a discussion in in in, in fringe newspapers um in the in in some certain quarters of london of, of the of kind of london radical press now, and this isn't even mainstream labor okay this is right on the fringes these are these are these are organs of um of, of social fringe movements that, that haven't actually got very much of a following um, and so that 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 overreaction actually protects them by the time we get to the end of the year when the Bolshevik revolution happens and it protects them into 1918 when war weariness is really spreading. Um, and if one thinks about, you know, spring 1918 is when Britain nearly loses the war. It comes very, very close to that. And at the point where its, it's, it's armies are under huge pressure, being pushed back in the spring Ludendorff offensives, um, the, the king rushes to the front. He rushes to the front within, within days of the offensive starting uh, to be with his troops. Had Britain been defeated at, at that point, the monarchy would have been associated with defeat in the field. And um, so, so I think that, that kind of, that, that change of the name to Windsor and the popularity of that in 1917, um, it's a fill-up that actually ends up protecting the monarchy uh, going through into 1918 as well. Would this history be very different if either Edward VII or Edward VIII were king during this period? I think it would have been very different. I think Edward VII, um, in terms of his imagery in wartime, it would have been a bad fit. Um, he was a, a, you know, he was he was he was fond of the good life. Uh, he, you know, he liked partying, liked women. Um, it's it's questionable whether he would have been able 
to to switch into war leader mode in the way that George V does. George V presents a very austere wartime image. Uh, food in the palaces is rationed. Uh, before rationing is actually brought in nationally, um, they're always ahead of the curve in terms of trying to anticipate what public expectations will be, what war sacrifice will look like in six months' time, for example. So they cut back on all entertainments. In fact, they stop. Uh, they, you know, they, they they stop having any 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 large dinners at any of the uh, any of uh, at any of the palaces. They cut back on entertaining. They dress, the king dresses solely in uniform, basically, for most of the war. Um, he gives up alcohol famously, but he, they also give up an awful lot of other things. So uh, no theatre, uh, no, no, no going to the no, no horse racing, um, nothing really except the hunting on his, uh, his private estate at, at Sandringham. That's the only thing that continues. And then he gives all the birds he bags to various war charities and war causes. And the queen is so draconian on the food situation um, that there's no pastries, that they're eating uh, you know meat only, only, I think, three days a week. It's all it's all completely um, and um, um, draconian, their, their, their austerity measures that are brought in. And I just don't think Edward VII would have been as quick to do that and that, to shift his image to that. George V is a new king when the war breaks out. He's only been uh, on the throne a couple of years. So he's able to form his image very quickly as a war leader. That people don't have preconceptions about him. And he's also he's much less associated with the international uh, the international sphere too. As a result, it was his father who was associated uh, with that Europe of of, of very um, 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 dramatic and splendid living monarchies. So I think I think that that works to George V's favour, and I think Edward VII would have would have struggled. Um, in terms of um, Edward VIII, Edward VIII, as we know, in the Second World War, um, after his abdication, um, he he's you know he is he is a war liability. Um, Post-abdication, he is basically liaising with Germany. Um, at one point, he is passing on information uh, through through the German embassy in Madrid, um, suggesting that, that the way to win the war against uh, against Britain is to bomb it, uh, to bomb his own people. Um, so Edward VIII, had he been king in the First World War, um, one can only speculate, but it's quite likely he would have sought in some way um, to, 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 you know, to, to, uh, to, 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 get some kind of more comfortable life uh, reasonably quickly. I mean, even as Prince of Wales, he's on the Western Front, he's enduring the war. He makes a lot of efforts at the start to try and sacrifice um, on a par with the soldiers he's serving alongside with. But, you know, towards the end of the war, his, his, his ability to sustain that really peters out. He's not someone with stamina. And so you see him starting to actually want to party, going to Paris, letting off steam, you know, visiting prostitutes, having... Um, a kept courtesan is one, you know, his, his, his favorite uh, uh, prostitute. So he starts to actually kind of try and live the good life in wartime as well. And it doesn't get out during the First World War. And um, the press situation means it doesn't get out. But you, again, you can see the problems had it ever uh, reached the public sphere. So George V, sandwiched between those two other figures, he was a much better fit for the type of war that World War One was and for the type of image that needed to be projected of a, of a monarch who understood that he needed to suffer and sacrifice with his people and sustain that for four years, not just for the first couple of years, uh, like like his son did as Prince of Wales, but the whole way through. Can you expand on your statement, quote, the view that the First World War seriously undermined the British monarchy is largely inaccurate, unquote? Yes, I think it would absolutely expand on that. I think the monarchy emerges from the war in the long term strengthened. I think what you see is the monarchy is compared favorably to other European monarchies, um, very skillfully by um, by pro monarchists in, the, in both in the British establishment and and in other parts of 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 the of, of the of the the, the British of British society at the time, um, particularly the Church of England, um, and so one sees 
there's there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of um, argument made that actually the British monarchy is different, unique, special, specifically British, not European, not like those other monarchies on the continent that are all falling uh, in 1918, 1919, but something that is very um, particular to Britain. And as a result, is an element, a core element of national pride and national um, uh, national identity and national association. And um, so that, you know, that I think is actually really key here. You get an idea of British uniqueness and the British monarchy as unique coming out of the war. And that stands to its um, you know, it kind of sustains it going through the 20th century because it can always fall back on this uniqueness argument ever after. And um, likewise, I think the monarchy really is strengthened by its association with the war dead. And this is really strange because one would expect anger from the war bereaved. Um, one would expect them to be really to, to, to you know, to feel resentment that, the, that, that their sons had died and her sons and husbands had died for um, for, for king and country, and that the king part of that would be blamed, but this isn't what happens. Um, and actually, the, the you know the king um, is the chief mourner at the burial of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey, and that is seen as something that is seen as honouring the war dead. It's seen as a very beautiful moment, a very cathartic moment for many of the war bereaved. And um, and the 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 idea that the the, the unknown warrior um, is buried, as it says on his tombstone, among the kings. Um, the suggestion is that he's elevated, that the unknown warrior is elevated to the status of a royal family member and honoured by the royal family. And obviously that, that then puts the royal family in the same sacred aura as the war dead themselves. So they actually gain from, it, from, from, this, from this kind of symbiotic relationship that is established during the war between monarchy and war dead. Um, and there's such a colossal mass death during the war um, that for British society, you know, after the war, putting up all these all these memorials, many, many of which choose to use the phrase uh, that men from this parish who died for their king and country, men from this railway uh, railway company who died for their king and country. Seeing that everywhere actually reinforces monarchy into the interwar years. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? What the key, one of the key things I would like people to take from my, away from my book is that the role of the monarchy needs to be revisited uh, for the First World War period. That there's a lot of really important changes that are happening there that actually set up uh, legacies for the rest of the 20th century around what monarchy means to British society and how it understands it. And the other key thing I'd really like people to take from my book is that you can't, you can't make arguments about the dangers of uh, republicanism to, to the British monarchy in the First World War without discussing Ireland. And the historiography before on, on the monarchy that, that, that exists uh, for this period um, has almost entirely focused on the island of Britain and left out Ireland, which was part of the United Kingdom at the time. And one of the things as an Irish writer living in England um, that I realised almost immediately when I started working on this topic was a real, a real Republican threat looks like what happened in, in the south of Ireland in 1919 to 21. When you see, you know, monarchist statues pulled down, you see people crossing out the, the, the image of the king on stamps. You see protests in cinemas when they show newsreel of the king. Um, you see, you, you know, you see you see flags torn down. You see none of this in 1917, 1918 Britain. You see in 1917, 1918 Britain, the Prince of Wales can travel to Parliament without a security escort. This is not a monarchy in danger. This is not a monarchy that's at risk in the way that the monarchy in Russia is or the monarchy in Germany is by the end of the war. This is a monarchy that's actually very secure, but that is terrified within itself because of its fears of what the war might unleash, quite sensibly afraid of, of this huge, terrible total war and, and the kinds of kinds of dynamics it might unleash. But this is not, we don't actually see those fears materialising. Britain's, um, Britain's monarchist culture proves robust enough 
to actually come through the war. And ultimately, I argue, the war ends up in some ways really strengthening it. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Jones, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Jones. Thank you very much, Charles. It was a pleasure.